Oh my god, I'm freaking out that we're doing this in person. This it's exciting. so exciting. Because I feel like, yeah, didn't you like make a little closet in your apartment or something? The littlest closet. And we're out of the closet, Dan. This is so exciting. Closet! From The Advocate Magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and something that I find so compelling is the number of people who've come out in the pandemic. You know, in Den's case, she's known that she's trans for a while, but it took this moment in time to realize, as she says, she can't run from it anymore. I knew I was trans. I've known it really in my heart for a long time, but it took all this time for me to like get over the fear of how a lot of the people closest to me would receive it. Den is one of the co-hosts of the Great Food for Thought podcast. That's Thought, T-H-O-T. She's here to talk about this, about the unique challenges coming out as a trans woman entails compared to other identities. And we also talk about her brand new gig as the editor-in-chief of Electric Lit. That's a website that I've long admired. So all of that is coming up. Let's hear it. So with the job at Electric Lit, you are one of the first editor-in-chiefs of a literary magazine or publication who is trans. And I want to talk about the job, but I think it's so interesting that had you gotten this job six months ago, that would not have been the headline. You've only been, right, you've only been like publicly identifying as trans for about three months, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it was a really wild thing to sort of think about because the truth of the matter is that the application process for this job was pretty long. I knew that I was going to publicly disclose that I was trans when we aired the first episode of Food for Thought of the new season, which was going to be at the beginning of June. And so I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go through this first interview just as Dennis, because I I don't expect that I'll necessarily make it past that round. And it's just all too much to think about at one time. So I like went through that interview. And then when I got the email that I had made, made the cut to go into the second round, which was to do an editorial test, I was like, all right, I have to let them know that I'm trans because I've just publicly disclosed like maybe a few days before. I just kind of knew that once I did it, there's no going back. I mean, people detransition, I guess, but like there was no going back. Once I declared it publicly, that was it. I just was like, well, here it is. Like, it happens to be that I'm transitioning now. So that's the fact of the matter. Like, when I sent that email, I was like, by the way, like, I am transitioning. I'm going by this now. I have a new email address. Like, let me know if you need me to update my resume with the new information. And my supervisor was like, yes, like, like I'll need to, I want, I'll want to send a new resume with, like, all of your new information. So I did all that. But it was just, I just was like, well, here it is. I don't know. Like, there's no going back. So I knew you as a gay man, and then you came out as non-binary, and now you've come out as a trans woman. And I guess my question is that fear of, I can't take this back. Did you have the same fear when you came out as gay than non-binary, or was that a different feeling? It was a different feeling. Yeah. Coming out as gay was a much quicker decision in a lot of ways. I knew that I was attracted to men from a very young age. Like, I think in kindergarten and first grade, I had crushes on my classmates who were boys. So in that way, maybe it was a long process. But I came out when I was 15, and it was just, I just got to the point where I couldn't live with the lie. And so that was that. And I didn't have any questions about ever going back. I never thought that I would ever like women. I just, like, that was kind of it. Coming out as non-binary was really interesting because I had been actually questioning whether or not I was trans for quite some time. I had just given a reading that night. I was drunk. I was with a friend of mine who was non-binary, and I just was like, I'm doing it. And I put it on Facebook, and that was it. But again, there was really no fear. And in some ways, it didn't feel that different. 
I felt like, okay, all the things I had wanted to do in terms of how I presented myself, I felt like I, I then had almost like legal justification to do. Like I felt like now I had every right to shop on the women's side of the store. I had every right to ask that people call me by pronouns other than he, him. I was not really thinking in that moment about sort of physical changes. So there was no question about thinking about going back. And I had a lot less fear around how my family would take it. I didn't feel the need to talk to them beforehand. But with this decision, feeling like I was sort of officially renouncing my maleness, that felt like something that I needed to tell people first. I was like, you're going to have to call me by a new name. Like, fewer pronouns than before. You know, in a few years, my body is going to be different. And I want to be fully recognized as such. Like, there, like I felt like the people in my life who in the past might have sort of turned a little bit of a blind eye to my queerness would not be able to anymore. And so that is what took me a long time to actually do it. And I always felt like there was no 100% chance that I would do it until the day that I was in the studio and we recorded that first episode of Food for Thought and we have like we have a schedule and we have so it was like I was like okay, I've recorded this and now I have 2 weeks to talk to my family. And I gave myself that timeline, but I also knew that I was ready and that I was by that point I was tired of not being out as trans. I knew I was trans. I've known it really in my heart for a long time, but it took all this time for me to like get over the fear of how a lot of the people closest to me would receive it. I've never actually heard anyone articulate their transness in that way, where like if I'm queer and I'm sitting out to dinner with my family, they can ignore it if like I don't have a partner there, Mm -hmm. you know? But if you're sitting in front of them with like a different body, a different like uh, presentation of your gender, like that is impossible to ignore. Yeah. And it's even like I can, I could go out to dinner with my family in a pair of heels, in a pair of like sandals that had a casual kitten heel in booty shorts and a tank top. And they might like roll their eyes, but they weren't going to call me by a different name. They weren't going to like make sure that like the waiter refers to me as she. And now it's, I mean, it's, it's different. Coming out as trans, I felt that there was a way in which the people closest to me had to participate and affirm or deny in a way that they didn't before. And that was wild. And so the day that that episode of Food for Thought aired, it was June 6th of this year, we took a while to actually promote the episode that day. And it was because we all waited until I had had the conversation that I needed to have with my sister. And I had been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And I knew it was going to be fine, but it was still really scary. And so we had a two-hour conversation. It was amazing. And so it was around 4 p.m. that day that I finally, like, posted on my social media. I had already started getting texts from listeners. You know, we're just reaching out to say congratulations and this is so wonderful. And I hadn't said anything on social media. And I don't think we'd really tweeted anything about the episode that day. And they were all on hold until I had the conversation that I needed to have. So if you didn't have a podcast where you needed to update people, or not needed to, but had the opportunity, let's say, I'm trying to think about, like, this was a timeline that ended up being, like, very healthy for you, but it was one that you created. I wonder, like, had you not had that, like, what, like, that could have looked like, or would it just be, like, two years down the road? It might have been. Really? It might have been. Or I might have felt... Like, I could start the medical process before telling people. But I knew that just work that was reflecting me now was going to be out in the world soon, and I didn't want it identified 
under the name Dennis Norris II. So I was like, I have to do this and I have to do it now. And I knew that that was coming. I started working with a therapist in July or August of 2020. And my therapist is a Black trans woman. I knew very early on that, like, I was going to have to think through all of this. And so I took the year to, like, kind of think through it and figure out what my timeline was going to be and how I wanted to sort of tell people. And that kind of lined up with the pandemic and being in quarantine. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you've been thinking about this for longer than that. But also did, you know, being away from like societal pressures and expectations inside for so long, did that help to clarify your gender for you? Absolutely. When lockdown hit... First of all, I was like totally broke. I had been freelancing for a year and I was I had started the process of like looking for jobs literally I think that week or the week before and it doesn't take me long to get a job and I can I was like I'll do anything and just like, you know, I'll walk dogs like I don't care. I'm just trying to finish my book and like pay my rent. And so I literally was like, "Well, I can't. We can't go anywhere because of the pandemic, but also I can't go anywhere or do anything because I have no money." So it was like all I could do was sit in my room and read and write and think and stew and I could not run from myself anymore. <laughs> this is so ridiculous. <laughs> so I'm coming out of the closet about this now on your show. Those first few months, I was super stressed out about everything. And one of the ways that I dealt with my stress was I started playing this game on my phone. There are these interactive novels and it's this app called Choices. And you you they're, they're like based on books. They're like you write, someone writes them as books, but they're the inter- these interactive novels. And you are, you can design your main character and then it gives you all these choices to make. And for three months, I was doing this all the time. For every game that you played, I chose to be a black woman. I always played as a Black woman. And for a very short time, I was kind of like, well, this is just a game. It's a fantasy. People do all kinds of crazy things privately in their room. And I recognize that this is also super, super, super nerdy. But it got me through the first three months of a very scary time, first three, four months. But eventually, I also was like, this means something. Like, this means something, that this is how I'm choosing to play and present myself. And that I'm having so much fun and joy, and I'm diving deep into this. I mean, I must have played, like, at least 10 or 15 of the books that are the the books, I'm saying in air quotes, in this game. I mean, you weren't working and you're stuck inside all day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, it was, I mean, what else are you going to do? And then the March for Black Trans Lives happened in June. And it was so amazing. And that day, so many friends of mine were texting me pictures of it. And I didn't go. And it is true that I was, like, really scared of gathering in crowds. And I was like, I'm high risk for COVID. And it's still scary. And I'm not going out. And that is, like, true. But the bigger truth is that, really, I was like, I can't go to that because I'm going to have a breakdown if I go. If I go to this march that I think is going to be huge and it's, like, in support of Black trans lives – I am going to just, like, have a breakdown because this is my truth and I'm not ready to deal with it yet. That's fascinating to me because you know so many trans women, but it was was it something about, like, the number there, like, that summer? Or, like, or was it just that you would, like, finally put, like, a name to it for your, like, own identity? So it's funny because I reveal so much about myself all the time in podcast spaces and on stages and to some degree in my writing, but privacy is very important to me. And when I need to process something and deal with it and like think through it, I need to sort of be alone in my space and have no one around and just quietly like process. And I was like, if I put myself in that space, 
I'm not going to give myself that opportunity. And I was like, I've been thinking about this for years. I was like, I think I've done as much work on this topic as I can do by myself. And I need to find a professional and I need to talk about it. And I need to give myself the space to think through everything about what this means for my life and how I might want to move forward. And I was like, if I go to this march and break down in public, I will not feel safe in that way. And so I can't go. I have to be at home. And I stayed home. So I don't want to be um, naive. However, like I think, I think that what I'm trying to say is like my assumption from my point of view is that Dead Michelle, who lives in New York and knows trans people and is very educated, would like see this in herself and say like, okay, like let's do this. Like there's no like challenge or struggle. And clearly that's not true. But I think that that's like kind of what I'm, I was feeling actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think a lot of things that held me back are things that had to do with my family and how I thought my family would take it. And I think. For various like reasons that are unique to us and our situation, one thing that I learned in this process is that I think for years I felt like my family might feel a certain sense of ownership sort of over my body and my choices. And that has to do with my father's death. That has to do with being his only biological child that was born male. And that in some ways has to do with like maybe the decisions that some of my, that my older siblings have made about like they, none of them have children except my brother who's adopted has a child. Oh, this all makes total sense to me because you're all naming the things I can't see. Right, right. Or I never even considered like you're the like assumed male heir to this family. Yeah. You know, my father was this super amazing, intelligent, impressive man who served in the Air Force and then went to Howard and then got a master's degree at Cursor Theological Seminary and then got a doctorate in theology at Princeton and, like, was this leader in the religious community and the local community and had this sort of successful, impressive family. And I think growing up, I sort of assumed a lot of those things. And some of them were put on me when I was very young. I had held on to some of those assumptions and expectations, not that I would necessarily do them, but other people expected me to live up to them. And one thing that became clear to me in the conversations that I've had thus far with my family members is that is that, that is not the case at all. Like, they had never expected or assumed that I would do any of those things or fulfill any of those roles. It was all pressure that I had maybe internalized from when I was very young, like when I was a teenager, and had never let go of. And really, I think, in some ways, hadn't consciously thought about until I started thinking about, literally, that my queerness was such that I would want to change my body. Oh, whereas, like, in these social circles in New York, where we run in, it really is not an issue. You right. got so much love, I'm sure, now pouring when you came out. Yeah. But it's the family in Ohio that has, like, more of a question mark. Yeah, it had a huge question mark for me. You know, my family's very religious, and there's a lot of complex conversations around the Black community and LGBTQ rights, and I think specifically trans people, and I think those are important conversations to have. And I was having a lot of those conversations with myself, and... I just felt like I didn't know how how those conversations were going to go. That, I think, held me back for a long time. I wasn't worried about my social circle. I wasn't worried about my friends. My, my job that I was doing this summer, I knew that they would be cool because it was an LGBTQ-oriented health organization. 
Shout out to Included Health. Before that, I was freelancing for a year and a half. And before that, I was at a nonprofit for about four years. And that would not have been a safe place for me to come out as trans. I really didn't give myself a whole lot of space to think about it while I was working there because I knew that, like, it wasn't something that I could really do. Oh, you didn't let your mind even consider it because you knew the environment was not safe. Yeah. Like, it was so funny because I worked at this organization and I took three months away from them in 2017 because I I went to McDowell for a writing fellowship and I was there for two months. And then I did another writing fellowship in New Orleans for a month that summer. And it was while I was in New Orleans that I really started to deeply, deeply consider the question of whether or not I might be trans. And not non-binary, trans, like a trans woman. And it was like, as soon as I got back to New York and got back into my life, which included going to work every day, I mean, I didn't have the brain space anymore because I was like a busy working person, but also I just knew that I wasn't in a space where I could do it. And it was a year later, almost a year later that I came out as non-binary. And the friend that I was with that night that I did that, that I posted that on Facebook and then it was something that was put everywhere, was a work friend who was non-binary. And when they did it, I felt safer that I could do it too. But it was really resisted in that workplace. And I was like, I can't be here for much longer. (laughs) So there were some concerns about like that. But once I got out of there in 2019, my only real concern then was like thinking about my family. And like, that's not something that I can do lightly, that I could think through lightly. Like I really needed to take time and sort of prepare myself for whatever the outcome was going to be. Even though, again, folks had kind of shown me for the last year or two, seeing sort of gender variant stuff that I was putting on social media, people had shown me that like it was going to be fine. But it's just like it's unlearning the trauma of coming out, especially when you've done it before, (laughs) is like an impossible thing to do. (laughs) Not, Not really impossible, but kind of impossible. So all the trauma of me coming out as gay in 2002, I think, when I was 15, or 2001 even maybe, when it was not received all that well, that was hard and I think haunted me for a long time. Which makes total sense. Yeah. With your family, do they listen to your podcast, Food for Thought? No, not my immediate family. Okay, I asked that because you said that you you keep a lot of things private. And yet, on that show, you air a lot of, like, sexual stories. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think of myself as a prude, but it's all things that, like, I would not want my family listening to. Yeah. Like, personally. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, this is the thing that's really interesting for me. That kind of stuff is not as difficult for me to share. I might have concerns at times, like, oh, if this gets out, will I, like, lose my job because I'm talking about, like, getting plowed on West 17th Street in public? Like, things like that. But those are not things that I feel so scared of sharing because early on when I was coming out as gay, I felt like the part of my sexuality that people couldn't take was the actual sex part of it. And I felt very strongly that like, if you couldn't sort of interact with the idea of me having sex and what that looked like, then you weren't really accepting me. Because as a queer kid, heterosexual sex and all kinds of machinations of it were shoved down my throat everywhere in the media all the time. So like, I always felt very clearly that I should be able to share sort of certain details of my sex life if I wanted to, if I was being fully accepted. Because straight people were free to do it as much as they wanted. I also think that 
you know, we talk all the time about the struggles of the trans experience, specifically for like trans women of color. And we talk about how hard it is to date. I think it's radical, and I don't use that word lightly. I think it's radical to have a trans woman talking about promiscuity, you know, and like hooking up and that kind of stuff. I think people need to know that you can be trans and a slut. <laughs> yes, you absolutely can. You absolutely can. And I use that word in like celebratory way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And one thing I've found, there are some ways in which it's harder to date now that I'm sort of more publicly trans and some ways in which it hasn't changed at all. But what has changed or has grown, this was already happening before I publicly disclosed as being trans, but is that there are so many more men who identify as straight or think of themselves as straight who are interested in me and pursue me. And that, I feel like, if I I have not yet gotten like seriously involved with one, but were I to, I think that would be, that would feel very different. That would be a, a different dating experience and like, a lot of those men don't seem to sort of even think of themselves as queer and don't necessarily have large queer circles. And like most of my very close friends in New York City are queer. And if they're straight, then most of their very close friends are queer. And we're in like those circles. And I think that may end up being a very, it may just present some different challenges. It might be really cool. I don't know. I haven't, again, I haven't dived deep into it yet, but it's just, it's something that I'm aware of and like thinking about a little bit as I like navigate dating. Which is fascinating, again, because, like, all the media narratives are that straight men who are attracted to trans women have shame around it, you know? And And many do. And many do. We talk about intimate partner violence all the time. But, like, I actually very rarely hear trans women talking about, like, no, like, straight men love me. Yeah. I was texting with one literally on the way to this this recording. The ones who are most cool with it are usually sort of like, oh, I'm actually bisexual, but, like, they maybe don't really, like, talk about it that much. It's a very interesting thing. And I sort of think about as I move forward with the medical transition, um, depending on how I look, will I go out in public and have to sort of regularly disclose to straight men that I'm trans because they won't know, which feels like a whole thing that I have not thought a whole lot about yet because we're not really going out that much, right? So (laughs) it's a question that I have and I wonder sort of how that's going to go and what that's going to be like. And I've talked through some of that with my therapist and with some friends and it's 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 just another thing to think about. Like my, I feel like my dating life will evolve um, significantly, especially. I guess we don't know what it looks like for the pandemic to be over, quote unquote. But like, once life is more normalized, I think that'll be very interesting to sort of see. For sure. So as you've taken on this new label for your gender identity, have you found that your gender expression's changing? That you like are, your conception of like beauty for yourself and attractiveness has also like changed a little bit? Yeah. I was talking to my therapist yesterday about how prior to naming myself as trans publicly, like my fashion hasn't changed that much, not yet. It's evolved a little bit. But prior to naming myself as trans publicly, I felt like I looked super femme all the time. And it wasn't uncommon for me to go out in public and have men sort of quickly look at me and mistake me for a woman. And I use mistake, the term mistake loosely, especially when I've had long hair in the past, even when I've had stubble, like it's like they would, it would just take a minute. I felt like, oh, I, I sort of was like, oh, I'm not even going to want to probably like do all that much. And like, it's not going to be that different for me because there are certain ways in which I sort of feel like my body is very feminine. Now that I'm publicly disclosed as trans and I would rather people recognize me as a woman in public, I feel very much like I look too male. <laughs> like I, um, like when I have facial hair, 
I mean, my facial hair has always been maybe the most dysphoric part of my body for me. And that's a whole complicated thing. Like, I know that right now, like, I identify as a woman. And if I'm with my friends out in public, they will make sure that, like, if we're at a restaurant, you know, they'll refer to me as she. But if a waiter looks at me, they will likely first, I think, still refer to me as he. And so that's a really interesting thing because I don't think that how I'm perceived publicly has changed all that much. But what is emphasized in my head has changed. And so whereas maybe in the past, I felt like 20% of the time I was in public, people, my passersby might just look at me and think I'm a woman at first. Um, That, I don't think that's changed. But I used to be really excited about that 20%. And now I'm like frustrated by that 80%. Are you saying, too, that when you're identifying as non-binary, that if, like, a waiter at a, at a place, like a stranger, referred to you as he, that it was kind of like, just like, r- you roll your eye and move on, but now right. it's, like, deeply offending? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's deeply offending, because I don't think they're necessarily doing anything all that wrong. They're judging me based on how I look, and that's the society we live in. And, like, yes, we can have as many conversations about how you can't judge someone's gender identity based on the way they look, but, like, we all do. And if they're corrected, they're always super gracious. It's just more like a frustration with myself. Like sometimes I wish that I was further along in the medical transition before I had disclosed because I just, that I'm like, oh, I like need to like work on this and I need to like get more feminine. And there are like things, there are things that I want to do and things that I'm going to do. And there are things that I've always wanted to do. But it's like that insecurity has like shifted. Like what used to feel very secure and like a thing that I felt very proud of, the focus has shifted. And and now I feel insecure about the flip side of 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 that 20% of people that would mistake me for a woman. Mistaken quotes. I think this conversation is fascinating because we've had almost, you know, a hundred trans people in the podcast in the five or six years of doing this. And yet you are the one to have come out most recently as trans. So all these things are like fresh yeah. for you. And I think as one example, when you come out as gay, kind of like the work's done. But when you come out as trans, like the work begins. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. The work begins. I'm still figuring out my healthcare. I'm figuring out, again, what kinds of procedures I might want to do. What's my aesthetic going to be? Like my therapist and like some and some trans friends who knew I was trans before I came out as trans were like, oh, you're going to have so much fun figuring out your aesthetic and it's going to be rough for a few months and, and then you'll figure it out. And I was sort of like, oh, I already know what my aesthetic is. Like, I don't need to change my fashion. I feel so great about how I dress. The minute I came out as trans, it was like, oh, no, like, I, my aesthetic is changing. Like, I'm diving into jewelry in ways that I didn't before. I'm diving into makeup. I wear crop, I mean, also, it's really fucking hot this summer, but I'm wearing crop tops all the time. I used to not feel like my body was good enough for me to wear a crop top, and now I don't give a fuck. My body's great. My skin is beautiful. Like, I think I look great in them. So many things have changed, and I, like... I'm terrified of needles and I just haven't yet had the time to get my ears pierced. So I've been wearing these clip-on hoop earrings sometimes and that's been really fun. And like, I'm just experimenting with all these details that I didn't think about before that I get to dive into and have a lot of fun with now. And that's also some of the joy of it, which is really cool. Yes, I love that. Before I let you go, we started the conversation talking about Electric Lit. I think that they do like a quite a broad range of things just for people who yeah. are unfamiliar. Can you give like the two sentence synopsis of the site? I don't know if I can give two sentences, but I'll try. Two um, and a <laughs> so yeah, I, I was recently named the editor in chief of Electric Literature. Electric Lit is a fantastic digital literary journal that's been around since 2009. It was actually the first literary journal that was formatted to fit iPhone and iPad. So it kind of pioneered digital consumption of literary work. 
we're a nonprofit and we exist to make literature more exciting, relevant, and inclusive for everyday readers. And so I'm going to be over all of that nonfiction work. So the recommended reading and the commuter have other editors, and I'm editing all of the nonfiction stuff, the book coverage, the essays, the criticism, author interviews, things like that. And is this week two on the job? This is week two. Oh my God. Big changes coming eventually. Absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for the awesome conversation. Thank you for having me. And that is my dear friend, Den Michelle. You can find her online at The Den Michelle. That's Michelle with one L. And then as always, if you enjoy this interview or any of our previous ones, please help us spread the word. Send a tweet, a Facebook post, an Insta story, text your group chats. All those things are the biggest ways you can help our show continue to grow and continue making new episodes every week. So thank you so much to everyone who does that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week. Bye. Oh my God, let me take a picture of you in this jank studio. I love it. Should I give you like smiling? Should I give you like smoldering? This is such a fun podcast. This is such a fun podcast. (laughs) My like white girl look. (laughs) 